So Money episode 1095, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, author of But First, Save 10, the one simple money move that will change your life. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. This is really, really a frustrating period of time to be a part of. You know, I have young children. I feel the frustrations. The only reason it's not adversely impacting my business is because my husband lost his. So, you know, we his full-time job is... You know, he owns a salsa dancing nightclub, which is not fantastic for uh, a a global pandemic. And uh, so we've had to shutter that. And so he is pulling a lot of the weight on the education. You know, he's right now with two of our three kids, you know, struggling through this virtual learning. And if he was not doing that, I know that a lot of that would fall on me. Imagine your saving grace in this pandemic being the fact that your husband loses his job. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm Farnoosh Tarabi. We have discussed this on the show many times over the last several months. It's been reported widely that this pandemic has inadvertently impacted women and our economic stability. More women are losing their jobs in this pandemic recession. More women are being called to take care of their families in many ways in this recession. And many of these women working mothers. How do they do it? Sometimes, as with the case of our guest today, Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, it helps if your husband is the one that actually gets laid off. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Our guest today is the founder of her own company, Aptis Financial. Sarah Catherine Gutierrez is a Harvard graduate. She is a CFP and recently recognized in the Investment News 2020 40 Under 40 class of investment advisors. She has a brand new book out called But First, Save 10, The One Simple Money Move That Will Change Your Life. We talk about the book and its discoveries, but we also discuss how she is navigating this recession and this pandemic as a mom, as an entrepreneur, and her advice for other women out there who are trying to not just survive, but thrive in this time frame. A topic that is near and dear to many of our listeners. Here we go. Here's Sarah Catherine Gutierrez. Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, welcome to So Money, Lady Splaining Money. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. It's doing well. And it's just such a huge honor to be here with you on your amazing podcast. Well, I am honored. I know you're a fan of the show, but you're doing so much important work. I'm holding right now in my hand, if this was a video, you'd see it, your beautiful book. But first, Save 10, the one simple money move that will change your life. This is a book that is the culmination of so much of the work that you were already doing, continuing to do on your blog, Lady Splitting Money. And of course, you run Aptus Financial. You're a speaker. So this is a lot of your life's work in a book. As with many authors who come on the show these days, especially financial authors, I like to first start with the question of if you had to begin writing this book today, knowing where 
we are today in the world, different than when you first cracked the book 10, maybe 10 months ago or a year and a half ago, however long ago you started to write the book. How would you write it differently? Or would you say every word the same? Oh my gosh. I just love this question that you've been asking. Um, So I would maybe have some a little bit different. So I did actually end up rewriting the introduction because this thing was supposed to come out in May. And so as we were doing the final editing rounds, the pandemic hit. And so we looked at it and said, oh my God, like we have to address this. And so we delayed the launch by two months and completely redid the first part. And so I can tell you that the first part changed because I was writing this book for three years during a massive, you know, 10 plus year bull market run where it's like, trying to, first of all, get people's attention. Like, hey, I know things look good and they seem good. It seems like things will never go bad, but uh, but please give this, you know, please give this a listen. Like, please consider this idea of saving first. And then this pandemic hit and all of a sudden we hit this massive savings rate. And I realized that as kind of sad as it was to launch a book where I can't go around and speak and all of this, that I realized that more than ever, we have a captive audience. We've, you know, hit a 30% plus savings rate early on. We're still at 23%. Um, I think the appetite for saving is so huge. So we did somewhat address that, but here is what, if I could rewrite the book and if I could rewrite it for just right now, it would be automation. So I talk a lot about automation in the book, but it would be everything. Because if we could just take what people are already doing, what they're already saving. It's kind of hard to spend right now. And if we could just somehow lock it in. So, you know, automation through retirement plan contributions, you can do automatic payroll deductions into emergency funds. Like, I think that would be the only thing I'd talk about because people are already saving right now. But if they don't take that next step to lock it in, I'm afraid that much of these savings gains will be gone by the time we return back to, you know, quote unquote, normal. Good thing you had that time to update the intro. You wrote, we are in the middle of this terrible, extraordinary moment, and there's no predicting what will happen. But this pandemic could be the catalyst that changes the generational rhythm. And you predicted maybe we will start saving piles of cash. We are. The savings rate is over 20%. I've never seen it this high. Even at the height of the Great Recession, we were saving 8%. Why do you think automation has had such a bad PR problem, right? Because it's like we've known for over 10, 15 years that automation it has won Nobel Prizes, this this breakthrough in behavioral economics that, you know, the 401k automation process, it works. And yet so many people don't opt in. Is it that we shouldn't even let them opt in? Like we should just do it and then if they change their mind, let them go back. But like, we can't be left to our own decision-making sometimes. That is exactly right. So I'm a huge fan of, you know, libertarian paternalism. It's throughout the book, you know, and it's, 
you know, adopting it from a policy level, you know, countrywide. So like what you're talking about, instead of opting in, have an opt out, make the defaults be automation, make the defaults be savings rates that will actually help people retire. What's the harm in that, right? So I believe that people should be free to make their own decisions, but if we can just nudge them to make better ones, I feel like that's great public policy. But I know from my own human brain and my own background of being a terrible saver and I love to spend money. I mean, I have like a long list of the things that I want to buy all the time. And so I know that like from a spender's brain, that for me, automation that I set up for myself personally in a variety of ways has been the reason that my husband and I, so my husband's a natural saver, but it's the reason that we have been able to achieve a lot of financial uh, independence goals ourselves, um, because we essentially just hide the money away from ourselves before it it hits and, and hide it in a variety of ways. So not just retirement, but through emergency funds, through home repair reserve, you know, car reserve, all these different um, savings accounts that we have to, you know, protect us and to, to, to protect us from all those kind of lumpy uh, disruptions in our finances. I love your book because it's such an it's a nice read. Like, I don't feel like I'm reading a technical book about money. I feel like I'm hearing you just give me good advice over a cup of coffee. And early on in the book, you talk about, you're such an advocate for women in the book. And yet you do talk about some of the things that adversely affect women. For example, uh, the fact that we are adversely affected by the retirement crisis. We live longer, we make less money, and our careers are disrupted more frequently through caregiving. We are just proportionally affected by divorce. And right now we're seeing the pandemic and the recession disproportionately affecting women. More women are are now out of the workforce before the pandemic. The unemployment rate was higher for men than it was for women. That has now changed. And more women are at the forefront of the caregiving and the, the teaching and the schooling. And, you know, if they're lucky to have a job too, it's like a pile on. What now, you know, it's like this added pressure, this added headwind. Can women be the ones to lead us out of this savings crisis as you, you know, you call one of your chapters? Can that still happen? Or are we taking some steps backwards? I think we are absolutely taking steps backwards. I mean, because saving is predicated on income. And this is really, really a frustrating period of time to be a part of. You know, I have young children. I feel the frustrations. The only reason it's not adversely impacting my business is because my husband lost his. So, you know, we, his full-time job is you know, he owns a salsa dancing nightclub, which is not fantastic for uh, a, a global pandemic. And uh, so we've had to shutter that. And so he is pulling a lot of the weight on the education. You know, he's right now with two of our three kids, you know, struggling through this virtual learning. And if he was not doing that, I know that a lot of that would fall on me and would absolutely disrupt this. So I feel it very viscerally and I've seen it, you know, firsthand with what my friends are going through, um, who are extremely well educated and, you know, on, on really advanced career paths, but this is a setback. Um, I don't know the answer, but I do know this is that, when we can build a pile of cash, when we can save more aggressively for times like this, I do think that that is where we can find a lot more of our power. But you're right. I mean, it's just 
it's something that I very much lament that is happening. And you're a mom, right? I, um, How many kids do you have? Three children, uh, Marco, Max, and Lucia. They are seven, five, and four. Whoa. Okay. <laughs> Day in the life. Tell me everything. This is, I need, I need to <laughs> feel not alone here. I think there's a lot of moms listening who are struggling. How are you ready? How are you keeping things? I don't even want to say thriving. Like, how are you just keeping it af- things afloat at this point? Well, my alarm goes off at 4.10 a.m. And um, there was an article about moms doing this in the New York Times. And there was one mom that said, um, I just can't go any earlier than that. I would cry. Um, And I've thought about that. Like, it'd be great to just do 3.30. Imagine what could get done. Um, But yeah, it's it's just the chaos is very difficult to understand that you know, day in and day out of these, you know, seemingly 17, 18 hour work days between, you know, running a company, launching a book, you know, uh, doing lots of writing, lots of speaking still over Zoom. And then the added complexity of, you know, are my kids going to school today? No, it's not today. Okay. Don't pack a lunch, but we've got to coordinate this. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a really unbelievable sprint of a marathon and we don't have weekends anymore. Um, it's just, it's, it's really, uh, it's really an exceptional time. And the only saving grace is that, um, I do feel like we've gotten a lot closer as a family. You know, we don't have any more, you know, oh, I've got to sprint to this after hours event. And can you take that? Can we get a babysitter here? So in some ways, like it's, it's more chaotic and, and tougher, but in other ways, it's been, um, I think great to be able to spend more time with the kids and have a deep, a deeper relationship. Um, the other thing is I, I have always done this for the last, you know, 15 years is I start every day in meditation. So I'm a practitioner and I'm not sure what I would do without that starting my day and realizing there's a much bigger picture here. You know, don't get lost in in the chaos. Don't get lost in the details. Just do your best. You know, it's, (laughs) you know, it's been a really amazingly calming practice that before was nice to have, but it's been a, a real crutch to me at this time. How about you? I need to start meditating. I think this is, I mean, the pandemic has really changed my life in so many ways. Rather than focus on the hardships, rather than dwell on the hardships, I try to focus on what I I started actually a list of like all the things I'm so happy about in the year 2020. You have to be conscious and proactive about recognizing what to celebrate because it's very easy to focus on what's not working. Like the fact that my son is still not reading. And there are days when, our house is completely chaotic. And, you know, my daughter fell out of her bed the other night and split her lip. Do we take her to a hospital? It's a <laughs> pandemic. No, we just let it heal. And it was actually fine. It, we take the good with the bad, but you have to f- make a conscious effort to focus more on the good. It's days like these when I get to connect with amazing women like Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, you know, to talk about money and, and you know, how to make the world a better place for everybody, including women. It seems to me that you've always had uh, an appreciation for financial literacy as the founder of Aptus Financial. Just curious where all that comes from. Where does it stem from? Yes, I got my start as um, an aspiring stock analyst at an investment bank. And 
it was there where, you know, there are very few women that go into that career field. And there is an enormous amount of jargon and a lot to get through when you're a mid-cap value stock analyst. Even just saying those words is, you know, that's that's enough to <laughs> to, to, to send chills down the spine because it's they're not words that we use in everyday usage. But once I was on the inside and realized, wow, like this stuff, it sounds intimidating, but it's actually really basic. And by the way, it's not fact. It's based a lot on opinion. And people sound really, really sure of themselves, but they're often really, really wrong. And um, and there was this moment where I realized we have got to demystify this a lot more because women don't engage with uh, the financial services in confident ways. They don't, you know, there is a lot of avoidance when it comes to, you know, signing up for that retirement plan. And so that was really the impetus to saying, you know what, this is not my life's career, which is to, you know, aid the larger markets and efficiency. My life's career is going to be in being this, this translator, this person who can bring women to the table and actually say, hey, it's not nearly as hard as it sounds. We, we make it hard, but it's really not. What was growing up like for you in terms of how you learned about money? Did you grow up in the South? Grew up in the South. Uh, you don't talk about money, except, and so many people will will resonate with this, you, you talk about consumption, right? Like, so when you grow up where, you know, we don't, you don't talk about net worth, you don't talk about income, you, you don't talk about those things. Um, so what ends up happening is you talk about um how you buy a car, how you negotiate a car, how you buy a house, how you, you know, the 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 things in the house you're looking for to buy it, but you're not talking about the details of the mortgage and how that fits in with the budget. So I think that's the the way a lot of people grow up is, you know, inadvertently the informal and overwhelming financial education is 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 actually a lot on consumption. And that's not by design, right? It's not like what people are trying to do, but that is how people end up getting their financial education. And that's certainly how mine started out. What changed? So what changed is I learned actually a lot about my parents. So it turns out that uh, my parents did this really interesting thing where they both worked and uh, my dad was a lawyer, worked for himself, and my mom was a teacher. And my dad didn't have a retirement plan, <clears throat> you know, a traditional one, you know, with a match that that a lot of people have, no pension, obviously. And so what they did was they would they would use my mom's retirement plan to save. And because of that automation, what they would do is every year they would just increase it and increase it and increase it. And so that is how they ended up actually doing, being really successful at saving for retirement without it being necessarily a focus or a concentration, you know, kind of the way you and I kind of see the world. And I've always thought that was really interesting. And so for me, what ended up changing in my life was kind of learning a little bit of wow, like this is more accessible than I think. But, um, but my, there is a, a moment that I'll describe to you where I was graduating from grad school and uh, had never saved at that point, you know, been in and out of credit card debt. And there was this commencement speech that was so bizarre because, you know, I'd gone to public policy school and he said, 
you know, I'm so tired of people graduating from here and wanting to change the world. We're, we're educating you to change the world. And what you do is you go get your first job, you know, probably a good paying job to pay off some student loans. And then you handcuff yourself to the job. And he said, that is the number one killer of people being able to do what you all are vowing to do right now. And I remember sitting there in the audience and I'm not even sure why I was paying attention, but I really was riveted. And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that is me. I've been working since I was 12 and I literally have nothing to show for it except for some student loans right now. And I, I was taking a lucrative job at an investment bank and I thought, you know what? I am going to take his advice. And I became a saver at that point. And that was a really transformative experience. Um, I would say that the dream to start a business didn't actually take hold. I talk about this in the book until I saw that pile of cash starting to build. And as that money started piling in the savings account, I would definitely say that's when my imagination grew like, wow, what if you could start a company that is based on education and not on just managing people's investments? What would that look like? You know, what if you uh, designed retirement plans where instead of just managing the list of investments, you sat down and talked to people and asked them personally to save money? Like, would they do it? You know, that those were the questions that I was asking. And it was definitely that that cash pile that, you know, you probably experience, you know, it, it gives you the confidence to go, wow, I'm coming out of the great recession and there are resumes stacking up for my position and I'm going to walk away. There's nothing like seeing it to believe it, to see the savings grow. As a human race, it's hard to convince us that um, we can save, that we can earn and save. And and I, I always say like, just do whatever you can, just start. And when you see it accumulate, that's only going to feed your appetite for doing more. Can I uh, quote you to that point on the book? Um, well, I actually just, is it on page 11? Cause I was like skimming through it and I think I saw the quote, but go ahead. Well, there's two quotes. So oh. there's page 11, um, but which is, I want, I want to want to take, I want to want to make money. I don't want to need to make money. I have loved that quote. I think that is one of the most empowering quotes but there's one on page 14 that you've said, which I think is to your point, like, how do you convince someone to save for the first time? Because that's what this book is. It's like my best argument, like to convince someone to start saving. And, you know, I, I talk about jokingly, you know, OK, I'm going to flash a compound interest chart in front of you. Maybe it'll inspire some of you. But if it doesn't, don't worry. There's other ways to be inspired to save money. But let me just give this quote. So it says, uh, money equals opportunity, power, control, autonomy. Maybe it doesn't buy happiness, but it does buy you the opportunities that you want to feel like your best self, the experiences you want, the agency you need to leave a bad situation. This to me, like this is what speaks to me. I did not want to get trapped. And I think a lot of women in their 20s, which is who we're talking to, I think that that is the most motivating thing, not talking about retirement, not talking about responsibility, or even, but like, how do you craft your situation so that you can walk away? You have the agency to leave a bad situation for you to have this power, autonomy, control. I mean, those are, to me, extremely compelling. I 
remember saying this and I remember saying this in the context, especially of like the Me Too movement. Every woman has experienced a Me Too-ism of some, to some extent. What I also mean by that is like the system whereby women are oppressed at work and threatened at work. Often for me, when I would read a lot of these terrible, terrible stories about women being, you know, chased out of their jobs essentially because they just didn't feel like it was a safe place to work because their bosses were hitting on them or worse. I kept thinking to myself, what if she had more money in the bank, you know, where she didn't feel like she had to be chased out of that job. She could just leave on her own terms and, and, and take the time that she needed to find the next better job where they did appreciate her and maybe even sue the company and not be worried about her career being threatened because she has financial security. So much of it did boil down to a lack of economic security that then only made it harder for these women to fight the system and to and to reject their bosses' advances and all that ugly stuff. And I I said that really because of what was happening in the in in the world in the moment. But it's true, like it doesn't buy happiness, but it gives you options. And who doesn't want options? And I think that that's what resonates right now. I think that, you know, in the Me Too movement, you know, we were in the middle here in Arkansas of, you know, learning our, you know, that women make 77 cents on the dollar. You know, a lot of women who want to make, um, you know, to, to have equity of pay just may have to start their own company, may have to uh, to launch on their own. And, and let me just say like, that is so full of uncertainty, you know, with childcare costs and healthcare costs, like it's very, very difficult to do that, which is why a pile of, I just call it a pile of cash. Like I try not to use technical terms because I think sometimes we ascribe like, you know, masculine tendencies or, or we have, you know, some people come with financial baggage into it. So I try to use very clear language. Like this is a pile of money that that you can look at you can open up your bank account and you can see it's there and i think that uh you know i've t- think about all the people i've talked to you know over the course of this almost decade long um ownership of this company i mean hundreds if not thousands of people and hearing their stories and i have talked to people who don't have savings and i think it's really easy for us to dismiss that you know, to be able to say, of course, it's good to save. It's just not something I'm overly focused on. It's not something I really worry about. But then you talk to people who do have savings, especially new savers. They wouldn't trade that feeling for one moment in their past life just to have, you know, a, a some kind of car luxury or home luxury. Like no one, once they experience what they feel deep, deep down when they have that security wants to go back to the f- prior life. I mean, I, I can say that with a lot of confidence as living both of those lives. And I have talked to the people who have made that transition similar to me. You'd never go back. We all have a financial trigger. We just have to figure out what it is. For one person, it's enough to say, hey, if, you, if you've if you got loads of money, you can buy whatever you want. But for others, that falls flat. For others, it's the message needs to be, if you have a pile of money, you will always be able to protect yourself. Because you don't know that person's story growing up, right? Maybe protection was the one thing they didn't have. Feeling secure was the one thing they didn't have. So as a good 
financial advisor, like as you are, or financial therapist or, you know, money coach, like that's, that's the challenge and opportunity is to work with someone and say, let me understand what it is that you appreciate most, what you value most in life. And, and, and pair that with, you know, financial success to say like, you can't really have that if you're broke, really have to assign it to something. Right. Um, and, and, and for everyone that assignment's going to be different and that assignment's going to motivate you differently. That is exactly right. And that was what was interesting doing, um, especially operating these retirement plans where you're talking to, you know, people who make, you know, $200,000 a year or $25,000 a year, you know, it's just funny to, to have these, you know, conversations, you know, you might talk to a dozen people in a day, you know, over and over and over and, and realizing, oh my gosh, we are all very, very different in what motivates us to save, why we save, why we don't save. And, you know, it's really interesting. That's why this book is not logistics. It's not just that, hey, I assume you agree with me that we should save. I don't, I think people deserve to have the best laid argument for why they should save. And what I was able to do was to tap into those conversations to say, hey, there are a lot of people who are rebels out there. And, you know, they're not going to save because it's a responsible thing to do. They're going to save because you talk a lot about freedom, freedom to make your own choices, freedom to walk away. That's going to be motivating to them. There are a lot of people who are very analytical. They have to see the data. They have to see what you're talking about put a compound interest chart in front of them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, to your point, like we have to address this in a really careful way that does not assume this one size fits all approach. That's why I love so much, you know, listening to you talk about money because, you know, I do think a lot of, a lot of money happens in the brain, that emotional side of the brain that we just have to get through all that tangle of wires and figure that out first before we can probably successfully save. Amen to that. The book is called, But First, comma, Save 10, The One Simple Money Move That Will Change Your Life. And I know that you and your husband, Jorge, co-own a salsa dancing nightclub. You mentioned that. So next year, if you're in Little Rock, <laughs> look up Club 27. <laughs> Hopefully it. you'll be back up and running by then. No, I we fully expect to. You know, we, uh, to your point, we built an emergency fund um, a long time ago and we have been living on that emergency fund. And it just reminds me also one more little detail I would have changed in the book. You know, we talk about building an emergency fund of three to six months, you know, after this experience, I might change that to six to nine months. Yeah. Or a year. Or a year. <laughs> Sarah Catherine Gutierrez, thank you so much. Be well. Arnish, thank you. Thanks so much to Sarah Catherine for joining us. Her book again is called But First Save 10, available widely. And check out her work at aptusfinancial.com. See you back here on Wednesday. I hope you'll join us for our conversation with Natalia Walker. She's the founder and director of Seeds of Fortune, helping women of color achieve higher ed at no cost. And I hope your day is so money. Money.